This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. It really shouldn't come to a surprise of anyone listening that the majority of decisions we are involved in on a day-to-day basis include an algorithm and why algorithms are a pretty good predictor. They're not always 100% correct. In addition, most people feel that by using algorithms, you can at times take the bias out of the decision problem. But again, that's not 100% all the time as well. And therein lies a problem for our society and potentially for our economy. We're seeing greater inequality in this country, personal, professional, economic. And according to our next guest, it's even threatening our democracy. Kathy O'Neill is a data scientist, author of the blog mathbabe.org. She's also a columnist for Bloomberg View and as well founder of the consulting company Orca, O-R-C-A-A. The book she has authored looks at some of these issues. It's titled Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. It's a pleasure to have Kathy joining us right now. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, when you, I mean, algorithms obviously have been around for, for a long time, but is it as simple as just how we have kind of adapted to this digital nature, this digital culture is the reason why we've just naturally seen an increase in the use of algorithms? Well, algorithms use data as their main ingredient. Like we couldn't build algorithms unless we had just a lot of data. So really it was the advent of social media and everybody being on the internet all the time um, that increased the data supply, which allowed algorithms to be created. And then once the technology for algorithms were created, people were able to collect data in other contexts. So, for example, if you're trying to apply for a job, um, they will, you know, 70% of job applicants in the United States are actually um, asked to take a personality test as part of the online job process. And part of that is because it's online, so they can ask a bunch of questions in a questionnaire. Um, And part of it is because they found that it's a very efficient and and cost-saving way of filtering out people. Um, so they don't actually have to interview as many people in person. Um, unfortunately, it, it seems like some of the uh, personality tests, and for that matter, other kinds of algorithms, although they do collect a lot of data, aren't necessarily making fair decisions with those algorithms. And for that matter, they're not necessarily making legal decisions either. Well, where are you seeing the, the, the greatest concerns in your mind? Well, the thing I worry about the most are the algorithms that we don't have any appeals process for, but that nevertheless make important decisions about us. So I worry a little bit less about online advertising for the most part, you know, for like, you know, here's some yarn you might want to buy or here's um, a car that you might want to think about. That's, of course, always been true and it's always been around. And we're kind of used to that. And the effect is there, but it's, it's somewhat manageable. And at least we're aware of it, hopefully. The kind of algorithms that have been recently introduced that really bother me are things that well, if you score badly, you can lose your job. If you right. score badly, you could not get a job, or you could go to prison longer, or you could get arrested more likely, more likely to be arrested, um, or you could lose your chance of getting a good credit card offer or good insurance rates or, or a mortgage. So these are very large life decisions 
that are increasingly being made with algorithms instead of people. And the economic impact, uh, not only on an individual, but on the culture, on on the uh, society as well, becomes significantly impacted. That's absolutely right. And so, you know, on an individual basis, I in particular don't think I'm being ill-served by the algorithms. But one of the reasons I don't think I'm being ill-served is because I'm white, I'm educated, I live in New York City, and I have extra money. So most of these algorithms basically promote me as a potential winner of the system. And that's essentially because demographically speaking, which is the kind of data they collect, demographically speaking, I am a winner. So what these algorithms are really doing, and I know this because I I built built these algorithms myself, is to sort winners from losers. And we sort those winners from losers mostly on demographic lines, which means that people who are lucky become luckier, people who are unlucky become unluckier, and that's a aggregate statistic, not necessarily an individual fact. So an individual person might be treated quite well in spite of bad demographics, but in general, what I'm seeing and what I fear is that algorithms as a whole promote inequality. So then you're, what you're also seeing then is kind of the enhancement of, uh, of a topic that we have talked on this show uh, before, is that, that, uh, that divide between the 1% and the 99%. It, very much so it becomes a threat to social mobility. Because the thing is, and you know, this might be obvious, but it's, I think it bears statement, which is algorithms at this point, how the, especially considering how they're used, they're not just predicting the future, they're causing the future. Right. So if every credit card company uses a similar type of algorithm to decide who's deserving of um, a risk, a chance, like let's give this person a chance, give them a credit card, but if they're all deciding on based on the same demographic information, but what it means is entire populations are being are being kept out of that credit system. And similarly, who gets good mortgage rates is uh, becomes a kind of population wide decision. And so social mobility is thrown out the window. The American dream itself is challenged. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866 if is the number if you would like to join in. Or you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111, B-I-Z Radio 111, or you can use my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. We are talking with Kathy O'Neill, who is the author of the book Weapons of Math Destruction. Again, your comments welcome at 844 942 7866 is the number to to join in. Uh, So then playing off of that, not only are we talking about, I would think, a potential impact here within the United States uh, of uh, the the lower economic grouping and the higher economic grouping, I would think that this probably plays into a role when you think uh, on on the global economic scale as well. Yeah, so it's actually interesting. Um, Many of the other countries don't have the algorithms as sort of developed. Um, in European countries, the laws are much more um, strict about what kind of personal data could be collected and used. But I think what you should really worry about is China. Um, China seems to be like the future dystopian of alg- algorithmic use yeah. um, that we should look to to avoid. They actually hmm. um, are developing something called a social credit score system, which is kind of like a FICO credit score like we have in the United States. But it's more than that, because it also encodes sort of like to the extent to which you're a good citizen defined by the Communist Party in China. So right. and it's also it's leaky onto your friends on social media. So let me put it this way. If I say something that the government doesn't like, 
and I'm your friend, then your score goes down. Uh, so that's a very, it's a very Orwellian big brother type thing. And it's very, very explicitly built that way so that people will behave themselves or else their credits, their social credit score will go down. On, on top of that, just last week in the Wall Street Journal, you saw an article that was talking about the extent to which the big tech companies in China are absolutely working hand in hand with the police and anyone looking for the sort of equivalent of the homeland security in China, anyone looking for terrorist acts. So there's a, an enormous uh, wide-scale um, data sharing and, and facial recognition uh, technology um, and surveillance, and it's very, very creepy. Which is interesting, considering there, there's so much conversation about, obviously, the growth of, of the Chinese economy and how a lot of people see uh, China as becoming the number one economy in the world right now. That's right. If we start seeing China, um, you know, becoming imperialistic and 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 sort of promoting this kind of this approach to data gathering and use in other countries, that would be scary. Very scary. You have spent time on Wall Street, and I'd be interested to get your opinion on whether you think Wall Street really understands both the positives and the negatives uh, of algorithms. It's interesting. Wall Street, the kind of algorithms that we use in Wall Street are a little bit different. Right. And they're a little bit more sanitized, okay. to be honest. Because in Wall Street, we're predicting markets for the most part. And we are, and whereas as in data science, we're predicting humans. Um, so the ethics are more obvious in data science, even though they're taken very unseriously. Um, in, in finance, the, the ethics are a little bit more abstract because we're talking about sort of how do you deal with the, the market, um, which is a sort of mechanism to start to stop, to sort of stop us from thinking about the humans behind these investments. Now, having said that, in finance, we know what can go wrong with models. We've seen them go wrong. We've right. seen the AAA ratings of mortgage-backed securities be, be flawed. So we know that in some contexts, it is actually not the goal of the modeler to build the most accurate model, but rather to get market share, which is what we saw by the credit rating agencies. On the other hand, if you're actually um, building a trading algorithm, your goal is pretty much aligned with making profit. Right. So you, in other words, you're pretty much expected to build as accurate a model as possible. Many of the examples in my book, um, the problem is that there are too many goals. You want to make profit. You want efficiency. You want um, time saving and cost saving if you're building a business. But there's also a secondary goal, which is you have to be fair. You have to be legal. You have to be non-discriminatory. And those two goals conflict a lot of the time. And we, we see people going for the profit or the efficiency rather than the fairness. And so that's, that's, uh, that happens more often. It comes up more often in data science than in, in uh, finance. But I, should, I don't want to give the people in finance, I don't want to let them off the hook. If there's a lot of damage you can do in finance. It's just not yeah. so obviously connected to humans. But it is interesting when you think about, as you said, that, that concern of market share uh, with some people developing algorithms. When you think about you know, trying to make that connection, and you mentioned online advertising before, uh, the, the impact that it can have uh, obviously can be, it can be great. And, and the fact that I, I think some people do worry about the fact that algorithms can be tried to tailor, or I should say can be attempted to be tailored for specific outcomes and not necessarily at the, at the positive uh, end of the spectrum. 
Absolutely. And I should say, you know, I have an entire chapter on predatory online advertising. I don't mean to say there's no online advertising can be damaging. The online advertising um, built by the industries of for-profit colleges and payday loans are absolutely predatory. Um, And for that matter, I spend another chapter on political um, advertising, especially micro-targeted political messaging, um, which uh, which is, you know, part of my subtitle. It's a threat to democracy. This is the advertising that allows campaigns yeah. who know more than, about us than we know about them, to be frank. It allows them to choose what to say to us about their candidate. So they can tell us the, the one thing that we agree with a certain candidate about, and it will keep away from us all these things that we disagree with that candidate about. Or even worse, I think what we saw in the latest election cycle is that we never actually learn information at all. It just becomes a sort of series of manipulative, manipulative nudges and emotional nudges um, that we that play out on Facebook for the most part. So then, what do you think are some of the the changes that need to be considered when we're talking about the use of algorithms? Because seemingly they're not going to go away; uh, they're probably going to even become more important as we move along. I agree, um, and and the answer is I don't know yet. Um, I know that. In terms of algorithms that have to do with our um, our rights, like so, our liberty, things like going to prison, they absolutely must be held to a very high scrutiny and make sure that they're they're constitutional. At the level of whether we deserve a job or whether we get to keep our job with job assessments, we have to have again we have to have due process rights to understand how this thing works. So some kind of transparency and fairness. Um, testing has to happen at the level of political ads, which is a big, big algorithm that involves Facebook and stuff. We absolutely need Facebook to open up their information, at least to researchers and to regulators so that we know what's actually going on. They're basically keeping the information from us that they have um, to tell us the extent to which the people have been influenced by these online advertising. It's not just Russia. It's our own campaigns. They're, uh, that are sending us propaganda that we have to understand what the effect looks like. Should this should this be surprising to a lot of of people here in America because uh, it's just it's just kind of evolving into a new version of how to play the political game. I mean, if you go back into the seventies and sixties, certainly there were a lot of uh, a lot of kind of dirty deeds that were done in politics. Now they're just kind of being done uh, through the through the digital format. Absolutely. Yeah, and I remember um, trying to to talk to someone about this who was working for the Democrats before the last election, and they just their idea was, oh, we're ahead, our side is ahead, so it's all good. No, it's not all good. It's a real threat to democracy. Um, basically, I feel like Facebook, Google, the the big tech giants that are making this just tons of money on advertising are trying to have this two ways. They're trying to say. We get attention. You know, we that's the, basically the currency right now is the attention of our users, and you can get this attention too, and you can pay for it, and it's worth a lot. So give us the money. But at the same time, they're trying to say, but we're not influencing people in negative right. ways. It's only for good. It's only commercial. And I think we should scrutinize that a little bit more. There's if it's influential, it's influential, and we have to know how it's influencing us. So then it sounds like you would be in favor of, and I, I shouldn't put words in your mouth, but it sounds like the possibility exists that uh, if we really did a deeper dive into those companies like Facebook and Google and Twitter and the impact that they have, uh, that regulators should continue to have a longer extended impact on 
on what some you know some of the things that these companies are doing. That's right. I do think that, um, and I I don't know exactly what that would look like. Um, sometimes I think we should just stop allowing tailored political ads. Period. That you know, as much as they those campaigns love them, why should they be allowed to manipulate us at the at the individual level like they are? Maybe we should say whatever you want to tell us, tell everyone or tell a random selection of people. You don't get to sort us by race, by age, by gender, by location, because it is too much influence. Um, I don't know if that's going to fly, but I really, I really start to think, like, isn't democracy going to benefit from a broad conversation about with facts rather than secret conversations with m- emotional manipulation? I do think we have to think big. We have to think big about what is happening and how we can deal with it that will preserve democracy. You also uh, spend a little time uh, in the book looking at uh, the potential impact uh, that people will feel from these algorithms, uh, specifically uh, looking at insurance. And we're at a kind of a transformational time on a variety of different levels where insurance are concerned. How do you think that that, that algorithms are going to continue to impact that that realm right now? It's really up in the air right now with insurance. I've been talking to a lot of people who work in insurance because I, I have an auditing co- um, company and I want to help people make sure that their algorithms, their the insurance company's algorithms are actually legal. Right now, um, insurance companies are being offered all kinds of third-party data vendor products, which are basically black box algorithms, and they're being promised, oh, you're, you know, you're claims will go down or the amount you pay on claims will go down or we'll get rid of the people that are going to have accidents uh, if it's car insurance. Um, And it's not clear whether those algorithms are actually legal. Um, And one of the reasons that the legal questions are up in the air is because um, recently the disparate impact decision from the Supreme Court, which basically says um, it it is illegal to say, for, for example, be racist, even if it's unintentional. Um, if it if it is effectively a racist policy, then it's illegal. Um, and that seems to be applying to insurance uh, companies right now, but it hasn't really been enforced yet. Um, so we're so it's kind of a gray area of insurance law. But if it is really going to be enforced, then many of these algorithms will be very, very highly scrutinized because they are probably having disparate impact. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. You also kind of talk a little bit about the fact that in terms of the algorithms themselves, doing risk assessment on the algorithms is something that we really need to consider even more. Yeah, I mean... My feeling is that in 20 years, we'll look back at this age of black box algorithms and laugh because we'll think to ourselves how silly we were to think that we could just use a black box algorithm without checking to see if it was working, to see if it was legal. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like imagining the, the original cars being um, built without bumpers and no airbags and no speedometer. Like there was no check on uh, on these algorithms now we are expected to hold them with blind faith and in 20 years we'll look back and say well we saw so much damage being done by bad algorithms that we realized we needed to make sure these things were working we and the way i like to say it is you have to put the science into data science we're not expected to trust science on blind faith we're expected to trust science because evidence because evidence is provided to us and that's what we're going to need in the future for big data
The book is uh, Weapons of Math Destruction. Kathy O'Neill is the author. Kathy, thank you very much for your time today. We wish you all the best with the book. Uh, And again, thanks for coming on. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, The book, by the way, is uh, available online and available in bookstores right now. Uh, And uh, it's a pretty intense and and pretty important look at uh, something that has really taken hold of our society right now, uh, the use of algorithms. So we greatly appreciate uh, Kathy joining us on the show. Again, the book, Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. Hour number two of our show coming up in just a minute. After the break, we'll have our number of the day. And then we will delve into the craze surrounding Bitcoin. Uh, We ask this, uh, we look at this, I should say, because of the fact that the value of Bitcoin has skyrocketed in the first several months of this year. Uh, It has boosted itself by about tenfold uh, over the course of the year. And here is uh, an entity, a cryptocurrency, that if you go back to 2010, was worth less than a penny. So we'll delve into uh, Bitcoin coming up in just a minute, and then we'll finish up our day taking a look at the L.A. Auto Show, which is going on right now. We'll talk with our friend Paul Eisenstein of the Detroit Bureau about some of the new cars out being shown out in L.A. and as well some of the other, I guess you'd say, instruments of travel that are being debuted out in Los Angeles. We'll do that as we continue. Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 